if I wasn't a kayaker, who was I? What was I doing? If I wasn't going to the gym, if I wasn't swimming three times a week, if I wasn't going out on the water, what was I doing? And I do remember feeling after I had my time off, the holiday, the relaxing time where you've eaten all the chocolate biscuits you want, you kind of feel like, wait, no, let's go back to reality. How am I going to pay the mortgage? What am I going to do with my day? I think any athlete that suddenly stops and doesn't have a next career path to follow feels massively lost. There's no one checking over your shoulder going, what time are you doing? How fast are you paddling, Lou? There's no one checking in on you. And I had that nearly 20 years and something to race against a clock. So it was very strange. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 17 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And today's guest is Luisa Gursky, a former Team GB athlete who competed twice in the Olympics in London 2012 and Rio 2016 as well as a slew of world championships and European championships, including the inaugural European Games in Baku. She has achieved incredible successes, and today she shares how it all began. From a time growing up in Walton on Thames, to first kayaking in Elmbridge Canoe Club, and joining the Team GB team to compete at two Olympics, Luisa shares about what the training was like, what distinguishes great athletes from the best athletes, and also how she made the transition from being an athlete to what she's doing now. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. As I understand it, you were very active as a child growing up with two brothers. So living at Walton on Thames, which is near a river, what was your childhood like? Yes, yeah, so, so three of us were always outside in my parents' garden. Um, we played around tractors, swing, slide, everything. And our neighbour where we live, and we go and play rounders together in the park. When I was 10, I started kayaking on the river, which is just sort of four or five minutes down the road from where they live. Going to that, So it's a very active lifestyle. I loved PE at school. I loved competing against my brothers. And then that obviously transferred into my career. So yeah, very active. We always used to go on holiday and be in the swimming pool from the moment we wake up to when we have to go to bed. Always doing water sports, banana boat. We were quite a loud, crazy family, just always on the move. <laughs> so it's just something that you naturally felt inclined towards. How did the whole kayaking at Elmbridge Canoe Club happen though? Was it because your whole family was going there? So my older brother, John, two years older than me, he joined. I just thought, oh, it looks quite fun. I tag along. I like sports. I like water, being outdoors. So I went down with mum and dad and loved it. And just being outdoors, there's a really good group of friends that you go through all the stages with, with through the years. I really enjoyed it. It was just every time you go down, you get faster, you learn something, a new skill. I love gaining strength and beating the boys as well. It's quite fun <laughs> at that age when you're so young. It's quite easy to beat the boys because you're all kind of the same level. And then there's obviously when you hit puberty, men become stronger than women naturally. But when you're 10, 12, you're kind of on a level playing field. And I really enjoyed that kind of ability to beat boys. I think at the time you beat your own twin brother, Nick, and that's why he quit when he was young, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. He, um, he said that he got a headache when he went paddling, but I was happy. I loved it. My brother went through the ranks. I kind of followed him and it was really good to yeah, have him as a good figure to follow. So were you quite serious about the whole canoeing since from young? Yeah, I'd say so. At the weekends, we went off to France as a great British team and you go off to Germany and race and I loved it. I, I remember friends had birthday parties and I wasn't bothered, but 
kayaking was my main driver. So my parents were always very open. They said, you know, you can go if you want, you don't have to go. They weren't pushy at all, very, very supportive. I think that was sort of half the joy of it for me. I, I didn't have to go. It was my desire to go paddling and just get faster each time. It was, yeah, purely from me. And were they training very yeah. seriously at the club at the time? That's only been three times a week when you're sort of 10, 12. And then as you go through sort of 15, you sort of then go every day, maybe have a, a couple of days off in between. And then as soon as you come sort of 16, 17, you start adding in morning sessions and then you go after school. So it's a nice gradual progression. Obviously, if you jump in the deep end too early, you'll burn out. The club was great at stepping you up the levels and the nice little steps as you go, yeah, taking you through them. Were there certain seasons where you couldn't because it might be harder in the winter, right? Yeah, British winters aren't nice. <laughs> They're very cold. It's funny, when you're younger, it, it toughens you up almost. If it was really snowing and really horrible weather, the club wouldn't go out for health and safety. But it made you tough. It made you sort of just put more layers on, be sensible to wear clothes after. You learn a lot about sort of keeping warm. And then when you get older, uh, when you sort of hit senior team, you go off to Australia for six weeks and train there or South Africa where it's nice and warm. So you get the best of both worlds. You learn and then... When you get older, you can reap the rewards of going away to summer sunshine. <laughs> so going away to places like Australia, was that when you were already in the World Championships and European Championships? Yeah, the British team decided that in those winter months, so from sort of November all the way through to February, March, the team would go away. Even Seville, we went there at the beginning of the year, sort of January, February, March time to get some warm sunshine and get some good quality paddling in. So you probably see sort of the Hungarian team or the German team training out there. You kind of have bases around the world that people go to just to get some warm weather in, really. Is it better to go around and train different places? Like how does that build you as an athlete? I think it doesn't matter as long as the water's nice. Seville is very good for say, warm weather and it's only a couple hours flight. And then the base where there's a lot of sort of national sports hang out there and train out from, it's not far from the airport. And it gets quite bumpy, which ultimately does actually help you. So ideally you want nice flat water and to train in water, even though it doesn't look bumpy, but these skinny boats can fill everything. It makes you prepare well for then when you're racing and you can't control what the weather's throwing at you, if it's going to be um, yeah wavy and bumpy and horrible winds. And if you trained in those conditions, then you come out stronger because you you've done it and it's normal almost whereas if you constantly train in nice flat water and it's nice glass and mirror then suddenly you go out to the world championship and the course is horrible and windy it, as I say whether you can't control your confidence gone out the window you're gonna flat it's just gonna be panic so training in conditions that are bumpy now and again is quite good I think I remember when I was doing competitive dragon boat racing, we did it once at a sea and the waves were crazy. You couldn't even stay in position yeah. just to get the proper start point. What was the hardest place for you to race? Because you've been all over the world. There's a course in Poland, Poznan, and it's really, really open. The wind can whip up all the way down. So the course is usually two kilometers long and it starts nice at the top. And then by the time you get down to the end, the waves can be sort of a couple of meters high. And they have occasionally called off racing because it's been so horrible. But it's almost who can cope the best. So Australians, for example, obviously have paddled in the sea and come from a surf ski background and they have very good ability to paddle in the waves, whereas other sort of smaller countries maybe have been exposed to that. So yeah, it just depends how confident you are and your sort of upbringing. So my club, as I say, we went out whatever weather, if it was windy, you go out paddling. So I was very happy to paddle in the waves where some people might not be happy unless they cancel the race, then you've got to go out there and do it. <laughs> 
And I think that people don't realize that when you are paddling, it's not just about the strength. There's a lot of tactics involved as well, right? Like what kind of main tactics do you think is most important to bear in mind? So there's two different types of races. So you've got sprint and marathon. So sprint is 200, 500 or 1,000. And then marathon, you've got anywhere sort of 10, 20, 30K. The tactics for a sprint race, if you're in a crew boat, so four of you in the boat, you'll have to know exactly what everyone's doing. So counting six strokes, or if you're going to pick up a certain places, is having a race plan that you've practiced so much in training that come race day, you can do it with your eyes closed. You can sit on the bank and you can visualize exactly what you're doing every meter almost for that 500 meters. I absolutely love the tactics in marathon. It's, um, it takes years of practice. So it's quite like uh, similar to cycling. You sit behind people's bike to sort of shield and sort of save energy. So there's a very similar thing in kayaking called wash hanging. So you sit on the wash and it almost tilts your boat up and it makes it a lot easier to paddle. So on, if you see a boat, they'll have waves coming out the side. So you're essentially sitting on that wave, boat tilts up and you're going downhill. So if you sit on that, it's easier but everyone kind of wants to sit on certain washes that are nicer. So it's a real game of sort of moving around and obviously these boats are long, so it kind of hit people's boats. There's sort of playing nasty. Usually people who play nasty mean they're quite panicky and they're not very fast, so they'll play dirty almost to sort of cover their abilities. Whereas if you're very confident and you have the fitness and the speed, you can easily get out of danger and move out of the group and then come round and find the wash hanging that you want. So there's loads of tactics if you go off the start for instance you kind of want to have nice clear water you don't want to be in the washy wave and then you want to sit on a nice comfortable wash your boat's tilted but then obviously someone's going to come on to take that wash it's lots of games you're going to get to learn what countries so as you race what they are if they're a panicky paddler for instance if they're going to sort of keep tapping your paddles because they're just nervous whereas you have a strong athlete who is just going to paddle away from it all just go to nice calm water and then come back in after. I could go on and on about it. I love it. I love the game of it. It's basically a game of saving energy and then making sure you're there in a good position at the finish. It takes a lot of practice and many years. I learned probably from the best club to where to position yourself and how to sort of watch out around people that's going on. You're always listening for someone that's coming up on the outside or in on the inside, watching if people suddenly speed up or slow down. If someone takes a drink, it's usually a sign for the person to change to another leader. But then no one wants to leave because that's the hardest position because that's the hardest work because you're not on the wash and your boat's not tilted. But then you also have to do the work at some point to kind of get the respect from the group that you're fit enough and strong enough to be in that group, if you know what I mean. So I love it. I miss it a lot that kind of tactics and playing around and you kind of work together I've raced with Australians or Japanese and all around the world and you can kind of work together in a group of four for instance and try and move away from the group that's behind so you can kind of get a bit of space between the two but then I've worked with people that don't want to do any work and then the group catches up and then it just becomes bigger and it's an interesting one you never know what's going to happen you can't plan either you just have to go in and try and sort of be safe and be out of danger. So when you're pedaling and people are catching up, do you start screaming at each other, going faster, faster? Absolutely. Yeah. You go, 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 go. They're catching. And if they're not fit enough, then they won't. But if they've generally caught up, it means they'll probably catch up again. At that point, then a couple will break away and and be like, right, we don't want to get caught again. Because obviously the bigger the group at the finish line, the more danger. And whereas if there's two of you, then first or second. Whereas if it's eight of you, you could come anywhere. (laughs) So is it better to just be ahead of everyone and just put everything at the start? 
Yes, definitely at the start, it's good to get away from all the, the ways and the paddles and the carnage. It's quite a nerve-wracking thing being on the start line and waiting for the man to say go. But you just want to go. It's going to be your hardest sort of one minute that you've ever done the race. And you just want to go and get nice flat water and then sort of relax a little bit, look around, see where everyone is. And then you try and find a wash because you know you've got another sort of two hours of <laughs> paddling around that you want to sort of work together as a team. The fittest people will be at the front, the strongest. And then gradually, as the race goes on through the hours and the minutes, it will sort of dwindle down. And then you're left with the fittest, the strongest and the luckiest as well. <laughs> yeah. And is there like the, your different roles depending on where you're seated? Because when I was doing Dragon Boat, like the first ones were the pacers, the engines were in the middle and the, the one at the end were bringing it up. Is it the same as well? Yes. So... I've always been in the back of the boat. So the first person steers it, sets up a really good rhythm, sort of symmetrical. They've got a very calm head and they're sort of driver of the boat. And then they also have the tiller bar so they can angle left and right. Number two is a really good sort of communicator. So uh, passes, because obviously if you're sitting in the back to the front, I can't hear what the front person's saying and vice versa, they can't hear the back. So number two will speak from the first and pass the message down the boat and then number three and four are the engines of the boat really we push the boat on you're staying in time so you're constantly watching the paddles going left and right and then also my back job is also to make sure if we lining up into the bucket of a start of a sprint race if the wind is coming from the right you need to pull your paddles to the right so you angle the boat because you want to be dead straight down the course you don't want to be angled one way or the other so that's the back person's job It sounds silly, but you have a lot of weed sometimes on courses, so weed you can get stuck on the rudder at the back. You're just kind of making sure that, that that's sort of clear and you back paddle and you clear it and you throw it away. So everyone's got their roles and it's interesting after sort of a couple of years, you kind of get used to that role. And once we switched it around and it's very interesting, you sort of get used to your job in that seat, number one, two, three or four. Then when we switched, I sort of assumed that people could hear me at the back or that you assume that. The, the boat is being angled and you appreciate how hard that role is and that you have much more respect for everyone that sat in that seat and the job they're doing. You really respect your teammates and, and what they're doing in that seat. I imagine you must know your teammates really, really well just to ensure that you're completely in sync. So what kind of things would you guys be doing to ensure you were just totally aligned? So a lot of the team that I race with at Rio and London, we've known each other for years before I lived with the two of them actually. And really good friends, like even now, I talk to a lot of them still, text and calls. So we used to have Friday night curry nights or pizza nights, eight to ten of us or so. It was lovely to yeah, be sort of building those bridges. And then when it comes to race day, everyone's very different how they prepare. So some people might want to listen to music, might go off quiet. Some people might be sort of extra loud and excitable. So it's just working out how everyone operates and sort of working with that so yeah it's lovely the team that we had it was it was so tight and essentially I sometimes saw them more than my husband on camps or my mum and dad my brothers so you really get to know everyone inside out and sort of what makes them tick and their weaknesses and how to sort of work around them how to get the best out of them I really like that side of sometimes you don't have the fastest four athletes makes the fastest four k4 so k4 stands for kayak and then the number four so it's not always the fastest four makes that K4 the fastest sometimes it's how people click and how they paddle together but it's ultimately like team spirit and if everyone's on the same page then you've got magical stuff happening <laughs> I love it wow and who gets to decide on what makes a K4 is it the coach then coach yeah so you have your selection race at the beginning of the year in your K1 so you're single and then from that 
you'll also be ranked and looked at how you're training and how you're doing. And then they put up maybe three or four different combinations. So I was always in the back. I've never been put in the front just because of the years experience I learned in the back of the boat. I was quite suited to that position, but you still have to perform and, and show that you're fit and strong to sit in that seat. It was it's never a given that you've just given that seat. So yeah, you have to do a couple of sort of fitness tests that you show that you're monitored throughout all your training sessions and as you go throughout sort of time trials and selection process. And then it's down to the coach to decide what's the fastest boat to bring to the Olympics. And how does one progress from training at a club to going to the Olympics? Little, little tiny steps. When I was 10, you just sort of doing little club races and then you build up to going to an hour drive away on Sundays to do races there. And then you go overseas and then you join the British team, the racing team, and then it's built up gradually over the years, really. And then the selection policy is brought out and then you think, right, I'm going to go for this. And it's tiny little steps, but if you look at the whole picture, it does seem crazy having gone from 10 years old, just doing a little race at my canoe club all the way to Olympic final but as I say it, it flies by those years and like I've been retired for four years now and I'm like where did that time go? I mean you spent almost 20 years there and that is just incredible yeah. that you dedicate yourself to just one thing you were very dedicated to this sport when you were training were you thinking I want to be an Olympian like what were you fighting yeah. for? Absolutely I think it was always a dream I remember watching it going well that'd be pretty cool and feeling goosebumps but I never really knew it was possible. It's just a dream. And then suddenly you're there the next day and you're doing the selection race to be considered for a London Olympics and Rio it creeps up on you slowly and then suddenly it's there. <laughs> and what about self-doubt, especially during the selection process? Do you face that and how do you overcome it? Yeah, definitely. It's, I think any athlete would be lying if they said they didn't have moments of self-doubt. When you're tired, everything comes on top of you everything seems a lot worse than it is and if you've trained three times that day and you're almost numb with pain and your forearms feel cold you're just basically a zombie everything seems worse there were definitely times when I cried just out of pure fatigue and I would speak to my mum and dad or my husband and they just say oh everything's okay in the morning you're just in that quite sort of dark place and fatigue can do a lot to a, a mental state but I think the main thing that we practiced a lot was when you're in that tired state that you can keep going, that you can try and push it. It's just getting that mental strength that when you come to a race and you hit that mental wall of going, ah, I can't do it. You've practiced it millions of times in training that it becomes, no, oh, I can go through the wall. I, I can do this. <laughs> and I think it was in 2006, was it, when you moved to Marlow, Buckinghamshire to train with the GB yeah. kayaking team? Was that difficult to have to actually physically move to train away from your family? Um, I think it, I was really excited because we were living in a kayaking house with my teammates. It was by the river. It was really exciting, a new sort of territory. But for me, the team was really good and every girl like, got on and had sort of say peach nights on Fridays and Saturday nights. So that was nice, um, sort of having that team bond. And what was the lifestyle like? I think that you were training from once a week to three times a week to three times a day, six days a week, something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, so say so train three days a week Monday Tuesday Wednesday was two days and then back to three so you have a rest afternoon half day on Wednesday and then three sessions Thursday Friday and then Saturday and then Sunday's your rest day it was very full-on and I think some people may have done degrees but it was so hard to study as well because it's a full-time job Sundays you're basically walking around like a zombie refueling for the next week washing your kit 
going to buy some more food, might see sort of friends and family, but to be honest, you're so tired that you don't really want to almost. You just want to watch, lie down, watch TV all day and just eat and then get ready for the next sort of week training. So the weeks flew by and the sessions were really tough, but I loved them. Each, each session was like a little challenge that you can sort of tick off. You've got all your scores, your data and your weights, you're lifting and shifting and for me, it was sort of like a little progression in your mind that you're getting fitter and stronger. Um, the coach is sort of monitoring you and you're supporting your teammates as well. So that when you come to race, you know that you're going to be there for each other. It's that feeling of knowing that you're not the only one on the start line, that you're all racing together, that you have each other's back and you're going to absolutely deplete yourself for each other, which was just the best team that we had, I think. And I wonder, you mentioned briefly that it's quite hard to do all your training with like studying for instance because I spoke to another Olympian she said that she had to pay her entire way through just to go to the Olympics was it the same case for you? Uh, no so we were very lucky we're sponsored by UK Sport Lottery funded and depending on the position you came at the World Championship meant you got a certain amount of funding on top of that you had sponsorship so you can ask for boats or paddles or kit food equipment cars even and then local councils can sort of give you sponsorships so I think it's different I'm not sure how the other countries do it but in Britain depending on where you are ranked in the world or however each sport do it dictates how much funding you're on. So is kayaking considered one of the better funded sports then? I don't know in terms of money wise I guess it's off your own back how much you drive for sort of sponsorship yourself. I remember writing letters to companies asking for you know, for supplements or peanut butter or any protein bars that you think is going to fuel your diet and your overall lifestyle. And companies, some obviously you don't hear from, but some send out little samples. So some people got free paddles. If you sort of won a world championship, you can get free paddles out of that as a kind of reward. And it's all sponsorship. It's like a two-way street of working with brands and building up a rapport with them. It's very good. Was it difficult to reach out to brands? I mean, you have to put yourself out there, not just train. Yeah, it's quite hard because obviously kayaking is not a big, big sport compared to sort of football or tennis or athletics. So you haven't got that main sort of media coverage as a lot of sports have. But I think I remember typing up emails, sending them out. If I don't try, I don't know. So you get some answers back and very lucky that you can have some sponsorship with some companies. But yeah, it's sort of off your own bat. And what about going to the Olympics itself? Because you went twice. So were the experiences very, very different for you? Yes, absolutely. London was obviously home games and you can bring my aunt and uncle and neighbours around there. We trained where we raced at the Olympics with Dorney Lake in Eton. That was where we trained every day. So we knew that London was happening there. So when I moved there, we knew that in sort of six years time, the race is going to happen there. So we knew the lake inside out. We knew everything about it and then Rio is obviously this massive unknown you've got the heat the color the carnivals the vibe everything was outdoorsy very different environment but both races wise very different races different kind of tactics we used different preparation so they're very different but both very very special to me. Do you have a particular favorite moment from those two competitions? London for me was when we walked out into the opening ceremony and 
David Bowie, We Could Be Heroes came on. And I remember just looking around. And obviously, because as a kayaker, you don't really have massive stadiums because it's outdoors. So this stadium was packed with 80,000 people. And I remember just looking around and my cheeks were aching so much from just looking around and, and being like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. So that for me, and I was with my teammates, and we're just bouncing and hopping and giggling so much. So David Bowie, We Could Be Heroes. And every time I hear it now on the radio, I just think of that moment walking out. And then Rio, for me, when I finished my racing, I was debating whether retiring. My body was sort of giving up on me a little bit. I wasn't sure. I was on the fence and my family had thrown out. And I remember we'd finished racing and my husband gave me the massive hug and he had tears in his eyes. He's a man who doesn't cry very often. Uh, gave me the biggest hug ever. And it was all sort of hot and sticky. And I saw my parents. And then that evening we went to the stadium to watch I just remember thinking, I don't want to be anywhere else in the world right now. I'm so happy that I have my family, my husband. I know I've got sort of a couple months off to recover and think where I'm at. And I just thought, I don't want to be anywhere else. I was just very, very happy at that moment. And because we all have these conceptions about what the Olympics is, right? And the media always portrays it in a certain way. Is there anything about the Olympics that you think people don't normally know about? I think probably the years that you give before that one moment. So no athlete has suddenly got out of bed that day having spent sort of a couple of sessions. It's years of work before that. So Jessica Ennis, Timo Farah, all the swimmers, all the divers, everyone, they've spent hours and years in that swimming pool, in their gym, in that moment, in that boat training. I think you probably look at other sports so I had a go at rowing you take for granted how sort of easy each sport make it look so cyclists for instance doing Tour de France they go on for six hours and then can go sprinting at the end up this hill and you just think how on earth they do that so I think you take for granted how easy each sport make it look so javelin they make it look so fluid for years and years of tears and upset and joy and happiness and injury that brings that one moment on that start line and that sort of 30, 40, two-hour effort. You just see that little snippet, but there's so much more that happens behind the scene leading up to it. <laughs> and given that you were on the forefront of your spot for so long, what do you think separates great athletes from the best athletes? I think how you prepare, it's some people prepare differently. And then it's how you put yourself out there. It's making the best of a situation. So you can either take a look at the weather and go, oh, no, it's windy. I can't do that. Oh, no, I forgot this. I can't do that. Oh, no, I don't feel so good. I'm tired. It's changing that attitude to, yeah, I can do that. And it's just difference between a good athlete to great athlete is sort of making the most of the situation, I think. Um, it's turning around, making it work for you. So it may be windy, but it's windy for everyone. I may have forgotten my T-shirt, but it's okay because my teammates have got something. It's always looking for another alternative that's going to get you through. And then just preparing, making sure that you don't end up in that situation, that you come down to that moment that you don't forget. <laughs> And you alluded to it briefly earlier, but after the first Olympics, were you thinking again whether to retire before you went for your second and decided to retire? No, after London, I was still quite young. I was thinking, yeah, no, I want to go again. I took uh, four months off. So I went traveling yeah, around in India, Vietnam, Cambodia, where I met my husband, which was really nice. I was still keen to jump back in the boat. Whereas Rio, I was 28. In kayaking, it was quite oldish. You wouldn't really see an athlete past 35 I kind of knew that I was sort of on the edge and my body was giving up anywhere. I had sort of little niggles here and there. My body was obviously saying, hang on a minute, you can't keep pushing me through all these gym sessions and these running sessions because you can't do it. <laughs> and what was the point where you decided that you had to listen to your body and just stop being this elite athlete? 
I started training into the winter, sort of November. I went back. A lot of athletes would take a lot of time off after each cycle. And I just didn't have that motivation, that buzz, that excitement, because it takes a lot of hard work to get up every morning out of bed with your muscles already feeling flat because you've done a really hard session the day before. And I just thought, I can't do this. And I was trying to find that motivation. But I remember speaking to my coach and he said, if you don't have it, you can't find it. It's quite hard to constantly chase it. And motivation is the main reason why you do it. You're driving forward for that sort of PB or that more weight to be added onto your discs or to go faster than you did yesterday or the week before. But if that motivation for those times to come down or for you to run faster or lift more is never there, you're just kind of flopping along and you kind of lost that fire, that spark. And in discussing with my husband, we kind of just thought, mm, well, let's look to sort of move on, new challenge in life. And he's always wanted to have little children. So yeah, I think that was a big driver as well for me. <laughs> was it scary for you to make that final decision to step away? Absolutely. If I wasn't a kayaker, who was I? What was I doing? If I wasn't going to the gym, if I wasn't swimming three times a week, if I wasn't going out on the water, what was I doing? And I do remember feeling after I had my time off, the holiday, the relaxing time where you've eaten all the chocolate biscuits you want, you kind of feel like, wait, no, let's go back to reality. How am I going to pay the mortgage? What am I going to do with my day? I think any athlete that suddenly stops and doesn't have a next career path to follow feels massively lost. There's no one checking over your shoulder going, what time are you doing? How fast are you padding Lou? There's no one checking in on you. And I had that nearly 20 years and something to race against a clock. So it was very strange. How did you go through that journey of discovering who you were? Because I understand after you left that you were with Wood Group for two and a half years. Yeah. <laughs> so how was that like transitioning over to what you're now doing? So with that, it was my first proper job. And I remember feeling quite lost there. And we were just doing up our house. So that was my focus. It was quite a short job. I went then to join another company after that. And all those little jobs I did have helped me. So with admin, it's helped me form emails, which I never used to have, the skills of Excel, which I never had. So all these people were asking me, and I said, I've never used a computer to work before. Like how many words a minute I can do. It's a very different environment, but you just have to make the most of each situation, I guess. I imagine it's been quite hard because for the first time you have these fixed hours, you're working indoors at a seat, working from the bottom up all over again. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it was a job and I would pay the bills, so it ticked that box. And then I was thinking, right, how can I go better? How can I make myself work up the company again? Because you are starting from the bottom. And I like that. I remember going, right, what more responsibilities can I have? How can I improve this system? How can I do that? Give me more things to do, more tasks. So I guess it kind of transitioned like the two sports and working and then also going for runs and lunch breaks. I read that you were cycling 20 kilometers every day yeah. to work and running yeah. during lunch breaks. <laughs> so you just couldn't get sports out of your life. Yeah, I was thinking, oh, maybe it will just fade away after time. And then sort of three years in, I was like, no, this really isn't going anywhere. I'm still training. Um, and I saw cycling to and from work just as a commute. But actually, I think deep down, I knew that it was my kind of daily exercise ticked. And then when someone say at work, oh, let's go for a little run. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. Or let's go for a spin. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm there. So I was always looking for that sort of adrenaline kick. So it was quite hard, I think being in an office so I was paddling this morning at six o'clock on the river and I felt like I lost a little bit of my love for kayaking but this summer these past couple of months I've found it again going back to my local canoe club Elmbridge and done early morning sessions before my day starts just put me in a good place watch the sunrise and I'm so happy whenever I talk to my husband after I'm just on cloud nine but it makes me so happy the action of kayaking just being on the water 
and just paddling to the best that you can technically I love it it's good <laughs> did it never cross your mind to maybe train future athletes in kayaking so you could be in the water again I did think that I do do a little bit with the little kids at the club and I really like seeing just little tweaks that I can help them with and, and little movements but unfortunately the base for the British team is two hours north in Nottingham when I was looking at jobs kayaking is such a small group of people and athletes that you can train whereas PTing is you've got pre and postnatal which I love you've got elderly you've got all different people in different phases of their life that I quite like to help and alongside that you've got the lifestyle that I can tap into so you've got a diet you're sleeping what you're doing day to day that I lived and and sort of was trying to always make the best of whereas with these athletes they're fantastically trained I just feel that my coaching ability is probably aren't as advanced as the coaches that they have in the team. And can you share a bit about your personal training, which I understand that you're currently doing now? I mean, how's life been like? Do you feel that this is your current why? Yeah, definitely. This is my career. I'm so happy in it. I can um, obviously be flexible around my little daughter. I can help people. It's so nice to see them progress and hit their goals. It sounds really sort of cheesy, but a lovely feeling that when I say right we're going to run from here to here and then we repeat it and they go faster and they didn't know how they did it somehow something clicks in their brain that you can kind of tap into and obviously the longer I work with clients the more I can um, understand what sort of makes them tick if they prefer that kind of quiet calm focused or if they um, prefer encouragement or positivity it's working out how they operate and just seeing their faces when they did something they didn't think they could do or lift something. And I just like, you did that. And they said, no, no, you helped me. I said, no, you did it. It was all your your job. Like, you did it. And just exercises in general just makes everyone feel good. I've had some people, some clients come to me in the morning going, I'm really flat. You know, I went to sleep at 2 a.m. And I'm like, you're here. Step one tip. Let's just crack on. And then pre and postnatal women, uh, to begin with, to have a child. And it's just amazing itself. I think there's a lot of trust that is involved in, between me and the client. Obviously, they've gone through this big change in their body physically and their body's changed dramatically and then they come to me, whatever their goals are. And how has COVID impacted you and what you're doing right now? If anything, it's actually pushed me online. So at the beginning of this, I was thinking, oh gosh, how am I going to see clients, clients face-to-face and how am I going to interact with them? Saw a lot of classes going online and then decided that, okay, I'll jump on with them. And I was able to then have more clients because I'm not traveling around as much. And it's a lot easier. I think clients are more comfortable in their own home. Gyms can be very daunting, sort of wearing lycra, mirrors everywhere, lights, music. For someone who's not in that sort of comfortable, it's quite a scary place. I totally get that. I still do face-to-face with limited equipment. So that side's quite tricky, but... I think being outdoors, you can still stay two meters apart and it's absolutely fine. You just can't high five them or give them a hug when they've done it really well, but it's a good, good little setup I have. And before we wrap up, I wonder, would you recommend your daughter to be an, an elite athlete if that's what she wants to do? Yes. Because <laughs> sport, it was such a big part of our life and it, it shapes you so well, like team sports, it makes you stronger physically. And mentally, I think the benefit on your heart and your lungs and everything is just brilliant. And also my husband's very tall and I'm sort of quite tall for a woman. So I feel like it'd be a waste if she didn't use her long arms and long legs. Um, but obviously I'm not going to be a pushy parent. You know, if she doesn't want to do something, then that's fine. But I will be 
exposing her to lots of sports, hopefully, and then ones that she likes. <laughs> so you don't think that parents should be pushy and just tell the child, for instance, to just go for it and find out whether you really like it or not? I think it's a fine line. So I know a couple of family friends, they're sort of exposing their child to sort of netball and kayaking and football and all these different sports, swimming, athletics, and then sort of hoping that one will maybe stick so for me I did swimming I did uh, netball and then I did kayaking I was just like kayaking it, it, that's it for me I just felt so comfortable and I loved it and I kept asking mum and dad to take me down to the club I think being pushy to a certain extent but then at the same time you don't want to force your child to do something and then they arrive up to the rugby pitch in tears and in a big state but then again it doesn't have to be sport it can be music it can be art it can be theatre I think it's just finding one passion that really makes them happy really like kayaking for me made me so happy it still does make me so happy I look forward to going paddling I look forward to that hour of just really pushing myself and me time and challenging myself but if my daughter finds something like that that I did then I'll be very lucky and very happy (laughs) do you think there's something that parents can do to make that whole experience more enjoyable and fun probably trying different things and on sort of family holidays going out there and just booking a kayak or having a go on a bicycle just exposing them to lots of different sports and just seeing if anything fires so a lot of my mum's friends have got some older kids and they say oh yeah we went cycling the other day and they really enjoyed it and we're going to go buy a new helmet so it's exciting those little things something that just ticks in their brain that they go mum can we go paddling again or mum can we go down to the running track again so yeah exposing lots of different things and just seeing what happens seeing where they fall in love Well, thank you so much, Louisa, for your time today. I normally end with these questions. The first one is, do you feel that you have found your why? Oh, that's deep. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I feel purpose now. I I think I was lost for a bit after Rio, but I feel like I found my place. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I think changing people is if they've had a session where they've really developed themselves and I've sort of assisted in that way even if it's just how they do a press up or how they're determined to chase a new goal hopefully I can help people to to have a little reminder for going forward by themselves. What do you think are the most important qualities an elite athlete should have? Mental strength is definitely one. Motivation, that fire within. I think having a calm, clear mind when you come to race so it's very easy to get panicky and all the pressure build up but it's almost calming down and going to sort of a calm meditative state and sort of going okay I'm just gonna breathe here for a second I've done this many times and just really focus on what needs to be done and that you can do it it's a positive calm relaxed state I'd say and where can people go to find out more about you and connect with you on my website so www.louisafitness.co.uk i'm also on instagram message me and say hi and that was the end of episode 17 the show notes can be found at so this is my forward slash 17 this includes the transcript and links to everything we just talked about let me know what you've learned by going to apple Podcasts to leave a review and subscribe and also take a screenshot of today's episode on instagram and tag me at so this is my why and louisa at louisa fitness with the hashtag, so this is my why. If you want to hang out, we also have a private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. And some of our podcast guests will also be showing up for a limited time to answer any of your burning questions. To join, just head over to Facebook and look for So This Is My Why. And stay tuned for episode 18, which drops next Sunday, because we'll be meeting one of Asia's biggest stand-up comedians with his own Netflix special, 
talking about how he made the transition from being a doctor to what he does right now. 